Today in part five, the very next thing you must understand, the next thing you have to get on the inside of you after you hear the gospel is you must understand grace. You must fully and completely understand the grace of God. It is only the grace of God that can take a slave ship captain like John Newton and turn his heart to where he then wants to abolish slavery. And he writes amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Only the grace of God can take a brilliant man like Saul who's persecuting Christians and, and his goal is to stone a disciple to death. Only the grace of God can knock somebody like that off their horse, blind them for three days, and turn them into the greatest apostle that ever lived, writing one-third of the New Testament. Only the grace of God can do that. If you're here today and you battle shame from an abortion from 10 years ago or an adulterous affair from five years ago or pornography that you looked at three days ago, if you battle shame, then you need to receive the free grace of God today. If you came to church this morning and you felt bad to lift your hands and worship God because of something you did last week, you need the grace of God. Because we worship Him not because we're perfect, we worship Him because He is perfect. Grace is focusing completely on Him and not on us. If you are uh, perfection-oriented and you have to do everything just right and you can't make a mistake, and if somebody knows you made a mistake, you got to say five good things about yourself to fix it. You need more grace because perfection-oriented people are focused on themselves, not on Jesus. If you are performance-driven and you think that you're successful if you have a lot of money and you're unsuccessful if you don't have a lot of money, or if you weigh a certain amount of pounds, you can feel good. And if you weigh another amount of pounds, you have to feel bad. Or if you have to dress a certain way to lure men's eyes to stare at you and lust after you. Listen, you need grace because you're focused on you. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus did for you. You are successful because you're a child of God. And that position was created by Jesus 2,000 years ago. Nothing you did to earn it. Nothing you did to deserve it. 85% of the Bible is who we are apart from Jesus Christ. And we have to know that. If we don't understand what a wretch we are, if we don't understand how disgusting we are, if we don't understand how prideful, arrogant, and selfish we are apart from Jesus, we will never fully appreciate the grace of God. We'll never fully understand how amazing grace is if we don't recognize who we are apart from Christ. So what is grace? Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness and favor of God. You don't deserve it. You don't merit it. You can't earn it. Here's what grace does. What does it do? It enables us to live in a fruitful relationship with God. You can hear from God because of the grace of Jesus Christ. You can talk to God because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I know you're thinking, well, that's not that big of a I mean, I'm not that bad of a person, right? I mean, God can listen. Um, if you think that you're not that bad of a person, you're probably comparing yourself to people on social media, right? Because compared to most of those morons, you're doing great, right? <laughs> or you look at the news and you think, man, them yo-yos over there, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty holy compared to them. Or the soap operas you watch, right? Guiding light and ain't very guiding or whatever it is, the young and the dumb, whatever they're called. And you think, you know what? Compared to them, I have a great marriage. Okay, listen. Don't compare yourself to people. Compare yourself to God and tell me, are you a wretch? Yes. Compared to the perfect word of God, are you blind? Yes. 
Are you lost? Yes, we need the grace of God. So I have three points for you today. For your notes, point number one is this. Free grace. It is completely and totally free. It's the most amazing subject to talk about because it's free. And it's so, I know you're probably going to think by the time I'm done with this point that I'm going to have to ask you to to buy some Amway or some Mary Kay or or to take a tour of a property and watch a video and then you get this. No, listen, it's totally free. I'm not going to send you an email. You're not going to have to sign up for anything. Don't have to text this number to this address. It is totally and completely free. It's not a down payment and then you pay for it later on. It's free today. It'll be free tomorrow. It'll be free two million years from now. It's free. It's totally free. Ephesians 2.8 says this. For by free grace you are saved through faith. Now just in case you didn't get it, there's more. It was nothing you did. Just in case you graduated from Socrates, it is a gift from God. If you're hard-headed, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's totally free. It's like God put a billion dollars in your account. All you got to do is receive it. Um, In the Greek, the word grace is the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. The C is silent in Greek, and it's actually pronounced haris. But now in the like 70s and 80s, a bunch of Christian people in America were naming their baby girls Karis because it means, you know, grace in Greek, even though it's pronounced Haris. And you can name them Karis and you can say Karis. It's totally fine as long as your last name isn't Maddox. <laughs> Karis Maddox! You know, <laughs> your child will be the one jumping over the pews in church and everything, you know. Okay, anyway, so before it was a biblical word, it was a cultural word. And everyone in the culture knew what Haris or Charis was. They all knew what it was. And this is the word God chose to explain grace. In the culture they lived in, it involved three different people in that one word. It involved a superior person, someone who owned something amazing. It involved an inferior person, someone who was in need. For instance, if there was an orphanage and a bunch of kids needed shoes, that's the inferior. The superior would be a shoe shop owner who had a bunch of shoes, but there was a third person. The third person involved was called the broker. And the broker would go into the community and find someone in need, children who need shoes. Then the broker would leave that person and go find the superior, someone who owned a whole bunch of shoes. But listen real close. Before the broker ever brought the inferior to the superior, the broker would work out a deal with the superior and pay for it himself. Completely pay for it. Once the deal was made, once the payment was exchanged, then the broker would take the superior person and bring them together with the inferior and the gift was given to them. Does that sound familiar to you? God is the superior. You and I are definitely the inferior. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus saw the need for us to have a relationship with the perfect God. So he went to the Father and he worked out a deal and he paid for it himself. And then he brought the two of us together. Here's my point. Grace is free, but it wasn't cheap. Somebody paid for it. The broker, it cost him his life. Grace cost the blood of Jesus, but it is still free to you and I. Romans eleven six 6 says this. If it's by grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. Okay, works is a church word. It's a Bible word for when you do something. When you work, you get something back. When you work, you earn wages. You merit something. You deserve a paycheck when you work. And Paul is saying, listen, it's either grace or it's works, but it can't be both. It's either free or it costs something, but it can't be both. If it's even 1% you, 
If it's even one percent works, if it's even one good deed, one good prayer, one faithful step, if it's even one percent you, then it is no longer grace and it becomes works. And Paul says it's all grace and totally grace. Um, if I were to ask you if, um, if, if, if Billy Graham, you know, he passed away a few years ago. If I was asked you, was Billy Graham saved or unsaved? What would you say? Okay, and then I say, well, how do you know? How do you know he's saved? And here's what you would say. Well, he served God with his whole heart, it seemed like. The fruit of his life showed that he was in relationship with God. He talked about it all the time. He built the kingdom of God. He financed things for the kingdom of God. It seems like he was saved. And I would say, you're exactly right. I believe that we can see that he was saved. But here's my question. Did the good things that Billy Graham did... Calls God to say, you know what? Now I'm going to save you. You are now a child of mine because you did all these good works. Is that how God did it? No. Or did God save the man and because he saved, he then goes and does good works because of it. That's the difference between grace and works. Works is you do good to get to God. And that's a whole bunch of other weird religion stuff. You can never do enough good to get to God. Never. I could give you a million lifetimes to try your best. I could put people around you to positively encourage you, send you a scripture every single day, take away anything that tempts you, and in a million lifetimes, you still couldn't do enough good works to get to God. That's works. Grace is because God saved me, I want to give him everything. Because he saved me, I want to do whatever he's asking me to do. That's grace. Uh, Romans 6, 23 says this. The wages, if you want to know what you did earn, if you're curious what your life did earn you, here's what it earned you. The wages of sin is death, hell, and the grave. But the free gift, everybody say free gift. Free gift. You don't got to sign a paper. You don't got to do it. It's a free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, if you want to know what your pastor has earned in life, I'll tell you. I have earned hell. I deserve hell. I'm married. In fact, there's proof. I can prove it to you. Okay, I can prove it to you. You know how the Boy Scouts have merit badges, you know, when they earn something? Okay, there are merit badges in my life since I've been saved of selfishness. There are merit badges in my life since I've been saved of envy and lust and hatred there are merit badges in my life since I've been saved of pride. But by the grace of God, I will not get what I deserve. But by the grace of God, I will not merit what I should merit. But by the grace of God, I will have eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, if you, if you grew up in a house where your parents always corrected you in front of people, which is called shame. If you could pronounce where you've been shamed and you feel like that when you do something wrong, you lost your parents' love for a little bit or you lost their favor, then you might have a twisted view of what grace really is. If you, if you think in your life that you have had to work so hard for what you have and it's your blood, sweat, and tears that gave you the job you have and it's your work and energy that gave you the family you have and you had to struggle to have the house that you have and you had to struggle to have the talent and the intellect that you have. If that's you, man, you've never experienced the grace of God because every single good thing in my life 
was a complete gift from God. A free gift. I don't deserve my friends. I don't deserve my church. I don't deserve my talent. I don't deserve my job. I don't deserve my wife. I don't deserve my kids. I don't deserve anything I've been given. It is a 100% free gift from God. I don't deserve 1% of it. If I did, it wouldn't be a free gift. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. I'll never merit it. It is a total and complete free gift of God. Point number two is this. Forever grace. Forever grace. So in the Old Testament, before Jesus, if you sinned, let me say it this way, when you sinned, you would have to go to the priest, not like a Catholic priest, but like it was a pastor pretty much, but they called him priest then. You'd have to go to this person and you'd have to bring something to sacrifice for your sin. You have to bring one of your livestock. You have to bring some money. You have to bring some vegetation. Something you have to pay for what you did wrong if you wanted to still be in a relationship with God. Now, um, you had to do this every time you sinned. Every bad thought. Even, the Bible, even if you get a scab. If you got a scab, read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Because God is perfect. He can't even be near a scab. You had to do something about it. There was something you had to do to pay. Now, it never took away your sin. It just covered it up. So then you'd come back the next day and have to do another one if you, when you sin and cover it up, okay? So Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says this. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. Man, you did that again? You had that thought again? You drank too much again? You just cussed out one of those northerners again? You were rude to somebody in church again? Did you really just look at that again? Did you really have that? Oh, man, the priest is all day long. There he comes again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's Saturday. We knew he'd fall again. And then on and on again. Okay, over and over again. Watch this. But Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice, one sacrifice for our sins for all time. Remember that. For those of you that think you need to get resaved, remember this. All time, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I have a question. Raise your hand today if you are still being sanctified. Okay? And if you didn't raise your hand, you got pride in you. We will pray for you after service. Okay? So you're still being sanctified. You liar. Okay, so listen. But listen, that's your performance. That's your progress. He perfected your position as a child of God. Your position has been perfected forever. Your progress, you're still being sanctified, and he is aware of that. But your position of a child of God came through grace. Now, let me give you an example. So last week, I had a great week. Great week. I read my Bible two or three hours every single day last week. Everybody said, ooh. ooh. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I did. Um, I worked out every single day last week. If I say, ah, yes, you did. You better say that. And um, I didn't yell at my wife. I didn't yell at my kids. I didn't have any kind of road rage. Great week. Great week. The week before, however, I was off that week. You know, I went and married my sister, not because we're from Ainer, but because I, I'm a pastor and a murder spouse. You know, we're gonna... And... Um, <laughs> And um, I probably, I probably, I didn't count, I lost count. I probably honked my horn 
at at least five cars that week. I mean, like, ha, like, okay? But don't worry, I think they all had West Virginia license tags. So it's okay, it's okay. Because they all get in the left lane and go under the speed limit. Anyway, Lord help me, I'm being perfected. It's okay, okay, good, okay? I'm being sanctified, Jesus help me. And then at the wedding, you know that the first miracle Jesus recorded was he turned water into wine at a party, right? So I wanted to honor Jesus, and so at my sister's party, um, if Jesus was from the South, he probably would have turned water into whiskey. Um, they had a special, it was an open bar, they had a special drink that the bride and groom recommended, you know, and it had whiskey in it, so I didn't have a great week that, okay, so anyway, here's the point. Was the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross 2,000 years ago, was it sufficient in that one sacrifice when I have a good week? Yes or no? Was that sacrifice sufficient once and for all when I have a bad week? Yes, yes it is. The reason that people get resaved or they feel so unworthy when they come to church or so guilty and that kind of thing, they don't understand. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that keeps you saved. It sustains you. Have you ever had the thought, well, when I get to heaven, I don't want to, you know, make a mistake and get kicked out of heaven. You ever had that thought? I know I have. And, and, and you know, um, and people say, well, there's no sin in heaven. No, no, no. The Bible says no sin will enter heaven. Lucifer sinned. He had a free will and he sinned in heaven and got kicked out. But listen real close. Jesus did not die for the angels. His sacrifice was for you. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that sustains you is the same grace you're going to experience in heaven for all of eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever. The grace will still keep you in the presence of God. That's amazing grace. That's amazing. So... Just in case you don't understand, there are two different things that Satan lies to us about um, whenever we make a horrible mistake as a, as a Christian, as a believer. Uh, and it's so funny how you and I judge our mistakes, you know. If we do something like this, we think, okay, I can go to church and worship. And if we do something like this, we think, I need to feel bad for two or three days. Do something like this, you know, give me three weeks off and then I'll come back, you know, to the presence of God and all that kind of thing. Okay, you don't understand grace. So Satan tells you you lost your position as a child of God. He says, you, you lost it, now you got to get resaved, and, and God's, you, know, you, God's, you have to re-accept Jesus in your life, and that kind of thing. So let me give you an example to help you understand. There's a, a, a rich businessman who is unsaved. He does not think he needs Jesus to get to heaven. He thinks that he's going to do some good things in life, and that he'll, you know, he'll be able to go to heaven, and, and he doesn't think he needs the grace of God. He goes to New York for a business meeting, and in his business, in a two-hour business meeting, he makes three and a half million dollars. He is on cloud nine. He's so excited. So as he's leaving the office, the limo is there to pick him up, and he tells the limo driver, go on without me, man. Life is great. I'm going to go walking. I'm going to walk back to the hotel. So as he's walking, he sees some kids playing with the ball on the side of the road, and the ball goes in the street, and so as quick as he can, he drops his $1,000 briefcase, he runs out there and scuffs up his $2,000 shoes, and he grabs the ball and brings it back and tells the children to be more safe when you're playing near the street. As he keeps on going, he sees a little old lady who's about to cross the road. She's going this way and he's going another way, but she has two heavy bags. And so he helps carry her bags so the light doesn't change while she's walking across. He helps her get across and then he has to go out of his way to go back and she thanks him and so forth. When he gets right outside of his hotel room, there's a homeless guy asking for money. And so he takes out $2,000 cash and puts it in the homeless guy's cup. Now listen, did the good works 
that the unsaved man just do? Did that officially save him? Now he's a child of God and now he's in relationship with God and now he's going to heaven. Yes or no? No. No. But there's another man. This other man is a Christian guy. This man, this other man, he knows he needs Jesus to get to heaven. He knows he does. He's received the grace of God in his life, and he believed and he received it. And he's going at it. In fact, we'll give him points. We'll say he's a, he's a member of Solid Rock. He goes, to this, he goes to the greatest church around, right? Oh, man, this guy must be really good, right? So he goes to New York for a business meeting, and in his two-hour meeting, he loses $3.5 million. He is so distraught. The limo's there to pick him up, and he says, you know what, forget it. Go on without me. I'm in such a bad mood, I'm going to walk. As he's walking, he sees some kids playing with the ball on the side of the road, and he kicks the ball out in the street and just keeps on going because he's so frustrated. He sees a little old lady out the corner of his eye with two heavy bags, and he accidentally hits her, and one of the bags falls, and he don't care. He just keeps on going. He sees the homeless guy outside of his hotel asking for money, and he kicks him and says, get a job, loser. Okay, this guy doesn't go to Solid Rock. He doesn't. He goes to the Episcopal Church down the street. It's where this guy lives. That's this guy. Did the bad works that the saved man just did officially unsave him? He's no longer a child of God and he's not going to heaven. Yes or no? no. Then why do you and I live like that? And why do we judge other people like that? Why do we feel like we have fallen out of favor with God? Listen, your good works didn't get you in the position, so your bad works can't take you out of the position. Your position has been perfected forever. Amen. The moment you received it, it's there. You didn't earn it before, so that means you're not going to get rid of it after. You didn't merit it before, you can't unmerit it after. It is not by works, it is solely, solely by the free gift of grace. Okay, here's the second lie the enemy tells us. The second lie is this. The second lie, the enemy says, you know what? Um, you've been saved for a long time. You're, you know, older, you've been in church for, for a few decades now, you've been walking with Jesus, and you know what? Now that you don't cuss, and you don't drink, and you don't chew, and you don't hang out with girls that do, and you don't do the things you used to, and now that your Facebook profile is modest and not what it used to be, and now that you, you know, all this kind of, okay, listen, you know what? You don't need as much grace as that other person does that just got saved. Man, that homosexual, that drug dealer, that liar, man, they need a lot of grace, but you, you're doing pretty good. Okay, listen. The same amount of grace that you needed the day you got saved is the same amount of grace you still need to stay saved. The same grace the homosexual, the murderer, the whatever, whatever they need is the same exact. Not, you don't need any less to stay saved. The same amount they need is the same amount you still need today to stay saved. It is completely and totally forever. Let me prove it to you. Romans, uh, James 2.10 says this. The person... Who keeps every law of God, but makes one little slip, is just as guilty as the person who has broken every law. I have a question for you. Since you've been saved, raise your hand if you have made one little slip in life. Now, how many of y'all, your life's been like a water slide at Wild Water and Wheels? Right. <laughs> save me, God, save me. Okay, listen. If you've broken one or if you broke them all, you're in the same. But, you know, um, I, I personally have a, have a horrible, horrible driving record in my past. 
by the time I was 21 or 22, my license had already been suspended three times, and I'd been to jail twice, once for driving under suspension, for all my speeding tickets. Now, I'm much more mature than I used to be. I sold my General Lee, I got a truck, and now I only get like one speeding ticket a year, maybe two, but, but like, I'm being serious, so that's not a joke at all. I'm being honest, I'm trying to confess my sins, and you're all laughing at me. I'm being transparent. I get one or two a year right now, okay? I got a good lawyer, though. But anyway, I really do. Thank God. I really do. Thank God for my lawyer. But anyway, um, so what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, so my grandmother, God rest her soul, uh, she lives over in Conway. Um, my grandma. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just thought that was so funny. I thought about that earlier. I said, God rest her soul, and she's, anyway, she really is dead, though. She's, she's in heaven now. But before she died, listen, before she died, she managed to go almost her whole life without ever, ever getting a ticket, right? When she was 85 years old, I was visiting her house over here. And listen, you know, I know what those blue pieces of paper, I saw this much of a blue piece of paper sticking out underneath her Bible like she was trying to hide it. I know what that thing is. I know exactly what that little blue piece of paper is. I pulled that thing out. She was driving to McDonald's right down the street one day and forgot to put on her seatbelt and got a $25 seatbelt ticket. I said, Grandma, you deserve to be in jail for what you've done. I can't believe you. Grandma, I am so disappointed in you. Listen, my whole life, she gave me all kind of crud for my driving record. John Paul's the worst driver. Don't ever drive with John Paul. You kids, don't be like your dad. He's a bit, don't ever drive with She'd tell all the other grandkids, don't get in the car with John Paul. He's the worst driver ever. And guess what? My grandma is a lawbreaker. Now, she might have made one little slip, and I might have broken a lot, but guess what? We were in the same boat that day. We both broke the law. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, if you're an English major or you like to read, you'll notice the scripture is not written correctly. At least you think it's not, but the Bible is perfect, however. It, it, the, the tense is changed. You see that? It starts off, all have sinned. We know that. Everyone in this room has sin. We know that. But then it changes tenses. In the middle of scripture, it says, and all fall short. That's present tense. Now listen, I could read you this scripture next Sunday, and it would still be true for every one of us. I could read it to you 20 years from now, and it'll still be true for everyone. I could read the scripture to you three seconds before you breathe your last breath on earth, and it will still be true that all of us fall short today. Now, in the Greek, a lot of the words in the New Testament come from a sporting context or military context. In other words, the scripture that says, guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus, that word guard means garrison. It means soldiers. It means it's military. It means put soldiers around your heart and your mind and don't let anything negative go in there. When the Bible says, um, let the peace of God rule in your life, that word rule is a sporting context referring to an umpire. Let the peace of God tell you what is safe and what is out in your life. You know, be led by peace. Okay, this word falls short, two words in English, one word in Greek, hamartino, and it's referring to a sporting context and that of archery. Now, I don't know how when last time any of y'all ever shot a bow and arrow, but down south, we all play darts. Everybody knows how to play darts, right? Okay, here's what this, it doesn't mean, it, it means to miss the mark, but it doesn't mean to miss the dartboard. It means to miss the bullseye every single time. Here's my question. 
every single thought that you've ever had, that you ever do have, even now, do you hit the bullseye every single time and think exactly what Jesus wants you to think? Okay. Every word that you utter out of your mouth, do you speak the exact word that Jesus Christ wants you to say? Do you hit the bullseye every time you open up your mouth? No, you do not. Now, my grandma may miss the bullseye. I may miss the entire target, but both of us fall short of perfection. And God's standard is not good. His standard is perfect. That's why he has already made us perfect as children of God in our position. He hit the bullseye for us every single time. Every single time. Okay, I have another example, and I'm going to close with a story in, in point number three. Um, Paul the Apostle, who wrote one-third of the New Testament. My favorite apostle. An apostle is a man or woman who trains pastors, evangelists, teachers, prophets, and sends them out to start churches and start ministries. So the apostle oversees them, helps them, trains them, sends them out. Okay, So the, that's, the, that's the man. I mean, Paul was the man. The man, right? So Paul dies in 66 A.D. He's beheaded by Emperor Nero. And he gets saved in 36 A.D. So he's saved in 36 A.D., dies in 66 A.D. So he has 30 years of being a Christian. We're all good with math so far, right? 30 years he's saved. 30 years he's walking with the Holy Spirit. I mean, 30 years. 20 years after he gets saved, 10 years before he dies, Paul writes the book of Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 59, he says this, I am the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be called an apostle. Hold on a minute, Paul. You're the man. No, no, you're, you're writing the Bible. You're training pastors and starting the vision that God has for the world. You're starting churches. We think you're great. No, no, no. I'm the least of all the apostles. Okay, that's fine. Seven years later, three years before Paul dies, remember, he's growing in God and he's getting holier and maturing. He writes the book of Ephesians and he says in Ephesians 3.8, to me, who am the very least of all the saints. Well, hold on, Paul. First, you tell me you're the least of the apostles. Now you're saying you're the least of all the saints. I thought you were growing in God. I thought you were maturing. I thought you were being holier as you get older. I mean, Paul, you're writing more and more of the Bible. We think you're doing great. And now you're the least of all the saints. Two years later, a year before Paul the apostle dies, he writes the book of Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. What's going on here? We thought you were cussing less and, 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 and not looking at bad stuff anymore and, and not having road rage. We thought you were growing in God, Paul. You, keep, you seem to get less and less and less. Here's what Paul is saying. The closer I get to a perfect God, the more I realize how imperfect I am. The closer I get to heaven, the more I realize how much grace I need to sustain me in my life every day. Paul's actually going in the right direction with his life. Point number three, and I'll close with this, and that is finishing grace. Finishing grace. Galatians 3.23, you foolish, foolish South Carolinians. You foolish Southerners. Oh, bless your hearts, Paul says. For you Northerners, like when y'all cuss somebody out, we say bless your heart, and it means the same thing. 
Did you receive the Spirit of God in your life because you did something right, like obey the law? Or did you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe, period? Which one was it? How can you be so stupid? Isn't Paul so gracious with his words? How can you be so stupid? You began by the Spirit of God. But now you want to finish in your power? You knew you needed grace to get saved that day. You were a wretch and you were blind. But now you think you've earned it? Now you think you deserve some of it? No, 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 no. You start by grace. You're sustained by grace. And you're finished by grace. I'll tell you a story and I'll let you go. Um, a few thousand years ago, probably 4,500 years ago or so, God came to the Israelites and he said, listen, I want to have a covenant with y'all. I want to be in relationship with y'all. Now, everyone in here knows what a covenant is and you've experienced it. There are different covenants. For instance, um, uh, when you were in grade school, there was the pinky promise. Everybody remember the pinky promise? You know, I promise to wear butterflies on my shirt if you wear bumblebees on your shirt. Pinky promise, you know, whatever. I promise to meet you at the playground later to play basketball, pinky, whatever, pinky. So, so a covenant has, there's two parts, my part and your part, and then we connect. There's always a connection to the covenant. You have a covenant with your mortgage company. They say, we're going to lend you this money and you're going to pay it back with interest. And here's how you connect. You sign your name on the dotted line, right? On the, on the, on the line. So that covenant. Um, marriage is a covenant. That covenant is verbal. And then you consummate. The verbal is, I promise to love you, never forsake you, you know, be, be good to you, sickness and health, well, all that, right? They, they, they both have it. And then they consummate, and it's a covenant, connected, okay? So God comes to Israel and says, I want a covenant, I want a relationship with y'all. I have a part, you have a part. They said, that sounds cool, what's your part? And God said, here's my part. I will be your God. I will lead you in the wilderness. I will direct your steps. I will heal you when you are sick. I will deliver you from your enemies. I will guide you. I'll give you my wisdom. I'll give you my strength and my confidence. I'll put my peace in your mind, my joy in your heart. I'll watch after your children. I will be your God. And they said, wow, that's amazing. What's our part? And God said, well, your part is this. You have to do every single thing just right perfectly never make a single mistake if you do you must pay for it because i am a perfect god and you are not perfect so you have to do everything by the law exactly as i tell you leviticus deuteronomy you have to do it just right and all the israelites said okay god we'll do it listen before moses even got to the bottom of the mountain they had broken all of it the first day they couldn't keep their part of the covenant the first day so you know what they did? They said, we'll try again. And again. And again. And then one of them got a scab. And one of them sneezed three times. And one of them, because God's perfect. And they have to pay for every mistake. And this went on for a few thousand years. And they did, just like a lot of mature Christians today, they thought they could earn it and deserve it. And then about 20 years ago, God came to me. He said, John Paul, I want to have a covenant with you. I said, that sounds cool. What, what, what does it involve? And God said, well, there's my part and your part. I said, what's your part? He said, I will be your God. I will lead you and direct you. 
I'll deliver you from your enemies. I'll protect you from the mouth of lions. I will heal your children. I'll bring your dreams to pass. I'll give you my strength, my wisdom, my confidence. I'll put my peace in your mind, my joy in your hearts. I will be your God. And I said, oh, that sounds amazing. What's my part? And God said, Jesus, come here for a minute, son. I want to be in relationship with John Paul, but he is far from perfect. So I need you, son, to get off of your throne where you rule the universe and go down to that place we created called Earth where you will be despised and rejected. And I need you, son, to live a perfect life life for John Paul. You have to do everything exactly right. You can't make one single slip. And then God said, but son, because John Paul is not perfect, the wages of sin is death. So I don't need you to just live for John Paul. I need you to die for him. And Jesus said, I'll do it. And then God looks at me and says, John Paul, do you want to know what your part is? I said, what? He said, do you believe that what my son did is enough? And I said, yes, I believe. Now listen, 20 years later, I'm preaching and teaching leading worship and training leaders and have a church. Do I still believe that what Jesus did was enough? Or do I think I've earned a little bit of it now? Listen, it was enough on day one. It was enough on day two. It'll be enough on day 5,223,563. And it'll be enough forever and ever and ever. And that is finishing grace. Amen. Amen.